Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading from the Wonder Book for Boys and Girls by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Three Golden Apples The snowstorm lasted another day, but what became of it afterwards I can't possibly imagine. At any rate, it entirely cleared away during the night, and when the sun arose the next morning, it shone brightly down as a bleak tract of hill country here in Berkshire that could be seen anywhere in the world. The frostwork had so covered the window panes that it was hardly possible to get a glimpse at the scenery outside. But while waiting for breakfast, the small populace of Tanglewood had scratched peepholes with their fingernails and saw with vast delight that, unless it were one or two bare patches on a precipitous hillside, or the gray effect of the snow intermingled with the black pine forest, all nature was as white as a sheet. How exceedingly pleasant! And to make it all the better, it was cold enough to nip one's nose short off. If people have but life enough in them to bear it, there is nothing that so raises the spirits and make the blood ripple and dance so nimbly like a brook down the slope of a hill as bright as a hard frost. No sooner was breakfast over than the whole party, well muffled in furs and woolens, floundered forth into the midst of the snow. Well, what a day of frosty sport was this. They slid downhill into the valley a hundred times, nobody knows how far, and to make it all the merrier, upsetting their sledges and tumbling head over heels quite as often as they came safely to the bottom. And once, Eustace Bright took Periwinkle, Sweet Fern, and Squash Blossom on the sledge with him by way of ensuring a safe passage, and down they went to full speed. But behold, halfway down, the sledge hit against a hidden stump and flung all four of its passengers into a heap. And on gathering themselves up, there was no little Squash Blossom to be found. Why, what could have become of the child? And while they were wondering and staring about, up started Squash Blossom out of a snowbank with the reddest face you ever saw, and looking as if a large scarlet flower had suddenly sprouted up in midwinter. Then there was a great laugh. When they had grown tired of sliding downhill, Eustace set the children to digging a cave in the biggest snowdrift they could find. Unluckily, just as it was completed, and the party had squeezed themselves into the hollow, down came the roof upon their heads and buried every soul of them alive. The next moment, up popped all their little heads out of the ruins, and the tall student's head in the midst of them, looking hoary and venerable with the snow dust that had got amongst his brown curls. And then, to punish Custon Eustace for advising them to dig such a tumble-down cavern, the children attacked him in a body, and so pelted him with snowballs that he was fain to take to his heels. So he ran away and went into the woods, and thence to the margin of Shadow Brook, where he could hear the streamlet grumbling along under great overhanging banks of snow and ice, which would scarcely let it see the light of day. There were adamantine icicles glittering all around its little cascades. Thus he strolled to the shore of the lake, and beheld a white, untrodden plain before him, stretching from his own feet to the foot of Monument Mountain. And, it being now almost sunset, Eustace thought he had never beheld anything so fresh and beautiful as the scene. He was glad the children were not with him, 
for their lively spirits and tumble-about activity would have quite chased away his higher and graver mood, so that he would merely have been merry, as he had already been the whole day long, and would not have known the loveliness of the winter sunset among the hills. When the sun was fairly down, our friend Eustace went home to eat his supper. After the meal was over, he betook himself to the study, with a purpose, I rather imagine, to write an ode, or two or three sonnets, or verses of some kind or other, in praise of the purple and golden clouds which he had seen around the setting sun. But before he had hammered out the very first rhyme, the door opened, and Primrose and Periwinkle made their appearance. "'Go away, children. I can't be troubled with you now,' cried the student, looking over his shoulder with the pen between his fingers. "'What in the world do you want here?' I thought you were all in bed. Hear him, Periwinkle, trying to talk like a grown man, said Primrose. And he seems to forget that I am now thirteen years old and may sit up almost as late as I please. But, Cousin Eustace, you must put off your airs and come with us to the drawing room. The children have talked so much about your stories that my father wishes to hear one of them in order to judge whether they are likely to do any mischief. Pooh, pooh, Primrose, exclaimed the student, rather vexed. I don't believe I can tell one of my stories in the presence of grown people. Besides, your father is a classical scholar. Not that I am much afraid of his scholarship neither, for I doubt not that it is as rusty as an old case knife by this time. But then he will be sure to quarrel with the admirable nonsense I put into these stories out of my own head, and which makes the great charm of the matter for children like yourself. No man of fifty who has read the classical myths in his youth can possibly understand my merit as a reinventor and improver of them. All this may be true, said Primrose, but come you must. My father will not open his book, nor will Mama open the piano, till you have given us some of your nonsense, as you very correctly call it. So be a good boy and come along. Whatever he might pretend, the student was rather glad than otherwise, on second thoughts, to catch at the opportunity of proving to Mr. Pringle what an excellent faculty he had in modernizing the myths of ancient times. Until twenty years of age, a young man may, indeed, be rather bashful about showing his poetry and his prose, but for all that he is pretty apt to think that these productions would place him at the tip-top of literature if at once they could be known. Accordingly, without much more resistance, Eustace suffered Primrose and Periwinkle to drag him into the drawing-room. It was a large, handsome apartment, with a semicircular window at one end, in the recess of which stood a marble copy of Greenbrow's Angel and Child. On one side of the fireplace there were many shelves of books, gravely but richly bound. The white light of the astral lamp and the red glow of the bright coal fire made the room brilliant and cheerful, and before the fire, in a deep armchair, sat Mr. Pringle, looking just fit to be seated in such a chair and in such a room. He was a tall and quite a handsome gentleman, with a bald brow, and was always so nicely dressed that even Eustace Bright never liked to enter his presence without at least pausing at the threshold to settle his shirt collar. But now, as Primrose had hold of one of his hands and Periwinkle of the other, he was forced to make his appearance with a rough-and-tumble sort of look, as if he had been rolling all day in a snowbank. And so he had. Mr. Pringle turned toward the student benignly enough, but in a way that made him feel how uncombed and unbrushed he was, and how uncombed and unbrushed likewise were his mind and thoughts. "'Eustace,' said Mr. Pringle with a smile, "'I find you are producing a great sensation among the little public of Tanglewood by the exercise of your gifts of narrative.' 
Primrose here, as the little folks choose to call her, and the rest of the children have been so loud in praise of your stories that Mrs. Pringle and myself are really curious to hear a specimen. It would be so much the more gratifying to myself, as the stories appear to be an attempt to render the fables of classical antiquity into the idiom of modern fancy and feeling. At least, so I judge from the few incidents that have come to me secondhand. You are not exactly the auditor I should have chosen, sir, observed the student, for fantasies of this nature. Possibly not, replied Mr. Pringle. I suspect, however, that a young author's most useful critic is precisely the one whom he'd be least apt to choose. Pray oblige me, therefore. Sympathy, methinks, should have some little share in the critic's qualifications, murmured Eustace Bright. However, sir, if you will find patience, I will find stories. But be kind enough to remember that I am addressing myself to the imagination and sympathies of the children, not to your own. Accordingly, the student snatched hold of the first theme which presented itself. It was suggested by a plate of apples he happened to spy on the mantelpiece. Did you ever hear of the golden apples that grew in the garden of the Hesperides? Ah, those were such apples that would bring a great price by the bushel, if any of them could be found growing in the orchard of nowadays. But there is not, I suppose, a graft of that wonderful truth on a single tree in the wide world. Not so much as a seed of these apples exists any longer. And even in the old, old, half-forgotten times, before the garden of the Hesperides was overrun with weeds, a great many people doubted whether there could be real trees that bore apples of solid gold upon their branches. All had heard of them, but nobody remembered to have seen any. Children, nevertheless, used to listen, open-mouthed, to stories of the golden apple tree, and resolved to discover it when they should be big enough. Adventurous young men, who desired to do a braver thing than any of their fellows, set out in quest of this fruit. Many of them returned no more. None of them brought back the apples. No wonder they found it impossible to gather them. It is said that there was a dragon beneath the tree, with a hundred terrible heads, fifty of which were always on the watch, while the other fifty slept. In my opinion, it was hardly worth running so much risk for the sake of a solid gold apple. Had the apples been sweet, mellow, and juicy indeed, that would be another matter. There might have been some sense in trying to get at them, in spite of the hundred-headed dragon." But, as I've already told you, it was quite a common thing with young persons, when tired of too much peace and rest, to go in search of the garden of the Hesperides. And once the adventure was undertaken by a hero, who had enjoyed very little peace or rest since he came into this world, at the time of which I'm going to speak, he was wandering through the pleasant land of Italy, with a mighty club in his hand and a bow and quiver slung across his shoulders. He was wrapped in the skin of the biggest and fiercest lion that had ever been seen, and which he himself had killed. And though, on the whole, he was kind and generous and noble, there was a good deal of the lion's fierceness in his heart. As he went on his way, he continually inquired whether they were on the right road to that famous garden. But none of the country people knew anything of the matter, and many looked as if they would have laughed at the question, if the stranger had not carried so very big a club. So he journeyed on and on, still making the same inquiries, until at last he came to the brink of a river where some beautiful young women sat twining wreaths of flowers. "'Can you tell me, pretty maidens,' asked the stranger, "'whether this is the right way to the garden of the Hesperides?' 
The young women had been having a fine time together, weaving the flowers into wreaths and crowning one another's heads. And there seemed to be a kind of magic in the touch of their fingers that made the flowers more fresh and dewy and of brighter hues and sweeter fragrance while they played with them than even they had been when they were growing on their native stems. But on hearing the stranger's question, they dropped all their flowers on the grass and gazed at him with astonishment. "'The garden of the Hesperides!' cried one. "'We thought mortals had been weary of seeking it after so many disappointments. "'And pray, adventurous traveler, what do you want there?' Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Stay connected by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash enchanted library. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash enchanted library. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends. Happy reading.